Well, I'm so glad that you joined us this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn with me and your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 9. And we're going to see what's been called the most important event that takes place in the entire book of Acts. We're going to study this today. And, and this study that we're going to look at is going to be familiar for some of us. But as I studied it in preparation for this morning, there were elements of this that I had never seen before that shocked me. And one of the things that's going to stand out is that God is going to take someone who would have felt like they were completely un redeemable. And he's going to change this man's life radically. We know him as Saul. And Saul is going to be a man whose mind goes through a transformation. His heart's going to go through a transformation. And as God is going to take a man who is an enemy of the cross, and he's going to turn him into what we will know of as being one of the greatest missionaries to ever walk the earth. And when I see this story, when I read it again, when I study it, there's a, an element of this for me of just saying, this just sounds like the God I know. It just seems to be the way that he works. I was serving with a team. We had an amazing ministry when I was in California where we worked with individuals who lived on Skid Row and especially their kids. So if you're familiar with Skid Row, one of the largest uh, homeless uh, uh, communities that's in our country. Uh, it's extremely sad, filled with drugs, filled with everything gross that's, that is the world has to offer. And it's, it's just a place that when you're there, you just, you just, you just heart breaks with sadness when you're there. But what the Lord gave us an opportunity to do to work with the Union Rescue Mission there was to participate in a kids program with, with their kids. And so as you can imagine, for many of them, their parents are living in tents on the streets and what their lives are like. I've never seen a kid be so excited about getting a happy meal in my life. It was, it was really interesting. But one of the men from the Union Rescue Mission that we got to work with, he was one of the leaders there. He was traveling around with us and we had trained our team ahead of time. Like I challenged you guys last week to, to start spiritual conversations and we prayed for opportunities to share the gospel. And I was traveling with this man with our team and I I asked him about his own testimony. Hey, when did you become a Christ follower? Tell me about your story. Or just tell me about... And, and he looked over at me and he said, Sean, you're just not going to believe it. And, and, and to be honest, like it was hard to believe the story that he told. Because he said that he had been involved in a homicide. And it was a botched drug deal that was tragic that had happened in Los Angeles. And it was a horrible story. And he didn't go into details. Thankfully, I was with the group of junior hires. And, but he, he just shared basically that it was terrible. It was a terrible decision. It, it was horrible. And he was in prison and he got a notice that someone was coming to visit him. And he first thought, like, who in my family cares enough to come visit me? Who, who would make the time? And, and then he sees the name on the list and he doesn't even recognize it initially. And then he really realizes this is the widow of the man that I had murdered. He, he, he realized this. So can you imagine in these moments what he's anticipating? You know, is she going to come and like it happened in the trial, take her pound of flesh, right? Is she going to share with him what he stole away from her? What's, what's this going to look like? And he in tears as he's telling this to me, says that that woman came in and actually the first words that came off of her lips were, I forgive you. And then she proceeded to talk about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, he said, the way I came to Christ, you remember what he said it was kind of unbelievable? He says, the way that I came to Christ was actually off of the lips of the woman who survived from the murder that I had done to her husband. Isn't that incredible? 
And, and I want to encourage you this morning as we study the story of Saul. If you, if you are Ananias, the guy who gets to be a bit of a, a tool in the hands of God, a guy who, like Isaiah, when he says, here I am, send me, like, Lord, I'm your guy. And then God tells him what he wants him to do. I want you to go to Saul and I want you to, and he's like, Saul, you, want me to do, you don't know who that guy is. He's breathing murderous threats. He's, he's nasty. He's the worst. There's no way that God could do this. And basically what God tells him is that, is that I'm pursuing him, that, that I'm, I have sought him. And, and we, I like this twist on words that, that the hunter, remember Saul was in the business of being a Christian exterminator, that the hunter became hunted, right? And Ananias is going to be this guy who gets to be a tool in the hand of the Lord, a tool to be a deliverer of God's grace. And so if you pay attention this morning, for each one of us, there might be a part of us that says, yeah, God couldn't love me and my life's been too much. If you knew my story, it wouldn't be like, like God can redeem the unredeemable. This is what he's in the business of doing. He can save the unsavable. He, that, that's going to be at the epicenter of this message, that God... God can really do what we could not ever imagine. And I also want us to see as we study this passage together, what's going to come to the surface is that, is that God is going to use individuals that are in obedience to him to be ambassadors of his truth, that, that he's going to allow them to change their minds. They're going to realize this truth, and, and it's going to be awesome. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 9, as we're continuing to study the unstoppable work of God, we're going to see how he takes a man who was a Christian exterminator, whose reputation was horrible in the church, that God's going to use this man and he's going to turn him from death to life. He's going to redeem the unredeemable, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What's amazing about this, this map is helpful for us. What's amazing about this is that we're not talking about backyard of Jerusalem here. We're talking about another country that was, that was um, under a Roman province of Syria. It's a six-day journey away. And, and what Paul wanted to do, it's, as it describes his breathing of his murderous attempts, that he, he now has moved beyond what we saw at the stoning of Stephen, where he's consenting and he's watching and he, now he is on the attack. He is full-fledged pursuit mode. And in the last words of that verse, what it says is that he was looking to catch Christ followers that had spread all the way to Damascus and he wants to bring them bound to Jerusalem, their trail of tears, to draw these Christians back over this six-day journey by foot. It's incredible, 160 miles and here, this, this relentless pursuit of Paul ends up running up against, and this is the first point this morning, the relentless pursuit of Paul is hunted by the Lord in such a way that, that God shows his relentless pursuit of him. That, that the Christian exterminator is going to come face to face, literally, 
with Jesus Christ, the one who he's persecuting. And, and I, I just, just love this truth. And that is Paul's trying to stop something that's completely unstoppable. There's nothing that he can do to get in the way of what God is going to do. Now, moms, you're out there. I always thought this was funny. We have a, a, a kid who's going through driver's ed and everything. Mom, did you, have you guys ever tried this before? But you're in the car, you're driving, and, and you, you make a, a tough stop, and you swing your arm out here like you're going to be able to stop your kid with the strength of your arm. You guys are strong, right? But you understand, like, it doesn't, it doesn't work very well. Or I saw this yesterday. It cracked me up because I wanted to, I saw the guy who was driving down the road with the mattress on his roof, you know, and, and he's, he's, he's doing this, this awesome thing. Like, I love this. Like, I got it. You know, like I'm so strong. I, it's not going to be the wind. I, I, you know, but this, this unstoppable, it's, there's nothing you could do to get in the way of this, that this is what we get to see. I, I like the way that one commentator put it, Archibald Thomas Robertson describing the apostle Paul when it's his breathing threats he gives this image of a war horse. He says, this went beyond threats to action. In the Greek, it literally means that Paul was threatening and slaughter had come to be the very breath that he breathed. Like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle, he breathed in the remaining disciples, the murder that he had already breathed in from the death of others. And he exhaled what he inhaled. In other words, he's just surrounded by death. He's pursuing this passionately. He's all in. And what we're, what we're told elsewhere, later in the book of Acts, we have two accounts in Paul's own words of what his conversion was. So it's great. We get to see this again later. And in those descriptions, one in Acts 22.3, he said this about his pursuit of Christians. He said, I was persecuting the church to death binding and delivering to prison men and women. And then later in front of King Agrippa in Acts 26, he says this in verses two through 18, describes, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in imposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 10, he says, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme and I, in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them. Like, do, do you understand? Like Paul, Paul was nasty I and mean, he was doing everything he could to exterminate the work of, of God. And in this context, as we begin in Acts 9, what we see is that, that actually it's super encouraging. The gospel had gone from Jerusalem. It had spread out to the cities that are around it. And now it's made it even onto foreign soil and Damascus. And here the gospel's reigning. And we're going to see that there's even disciples there and the church had grown. And so here this, this, this man is going to fish to see if he can find Christians to drag them home and it's just like he's, he thinks he can get away with this, but it's not going to work out well for him. Verse three says this. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Later, we put this together. This is in the midday sun. This is the, the hottest time of day. The sun was bright 
And it was not the son that blinds him. But actually, we see later in Paul's own words in 1 Corinthians and Galatians that, that he actually gets this glimpse as the light from heaven comes down of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been studying this passage of scripture with us through the book of Acts, what we've seen is that, that Stephen actually got a glimpse into heaven right before he died. And what we were told about, about him is that he glowed with light, right? Like that he'd seen the living God. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ and he was standing in heaven and, and it led him to glow. And you know what it did with the apostle, with Saul before he had converted to becoming a Christ follower is that it literally blinded him. It says this in verse four, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I don't know if that repeating his name is like my mom using Derek, Sean, Derek, Brennan, you're in extra trouble right now, right? You know, like that, that he's repeating, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul says back to him, who are you, Lord? Uh, later in the book of Acts in verse 20, chapter 26, verse 14, it says, that, that there was an extra dialogue that he has. And it describes this thing. It says, it says this. It says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That, that what Paul's doing, if you picture an animal that's, that's, in an, in a, um, that's, that's pulling something that, that has a yoke around it, that, that as it's, it's, being, it's towing this thing, that it's kicking up, like trying to stop this, these ropes that are tugging, that are bothering him. And he's just like, like Saul's at this moment, he's kicking up against everything. And inside of him, he's doing something that I think we do sometimes. Is that if he believes with his little gesture of pushing away God, that he can push away God's grace, God's righteousness, the fact that he's been fighting for the wrong team, that he can push away the truth of God, even though it's a hard truth and it doesn't work. He's kicking against the goads, and here what happens is this. It's so incredible. It says, and it goes on in verse five. It says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Uh, that, that at this moment, what we're told elsewhere in scriptures, that he had this glimpse into heaven. He sees Jesus. He doesn't recognize him. He uses this Greek word, Lord. It, it's almost ironic. It's almost foreshadowing. Like here he is. He sees God in heaven. Who are you is this question. What's going on? I, I can't help but, but think about in my own life that there have been these crossroad time periods that were on big things that I've just had to say, Lord, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to believe you. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, what we're going to see is a need for divine blind obedience from this man. In other words, God said, go, and he's going to have to obey him. Now the fact that he's been blinded. And it requires us at times to accept, I was wrong. Now, my dad has this tendency to be right most of the time. When I was a kid, we were driving together, and he said, hey, Sean, how long do you think that those, those, um, uh, the painted white lines are on the highway? So I'm going to ask you, church, like right now, like give me like how, how many feet do you think those, like you drive by them every day, right? So dad says, how long do you think those are? And I said, two feet. Anybody agree with me? Joe says four feet. Anybody else want to put themselves out there? Okay, so I see three feet. You guys are all dead wrong. It's 10 feet long. 
And, and you can take a tape measure, because I did, to try to prove my dad that he was wrong. You can take a tape measure out and measure these things. They're actually 10 feet long. And, and right now, you guys are all like, Sean doesn't know what he's talking about. Take your tape measure. Go look at it. My dad's right. At this moment in history, can you imagine how hard it would have been for this man to believe that he's persecuting under the, the, the strength of God's authority and now he has to go, what? You mean I have to change my perspective? Yeah, actually, you do. And in this case, God's word is going to be so powerful. His grace is going to be so sufficient that God's going to use this man in a mighty way. The words were this, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. Now, Paul had this posse with him that they were getting ready to go find Christians, chain them up, drag them home from this, this city that's, that's 160 miles away. And now God's going to use these men who were a part of his hunting party to, to be tools of God to draw Saul unto himself. So this blind man, the men who were traveling with him, stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they didn't see Jesus. And it says then in verse 8, Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. J. Vernon McGee, in his classic way, says it like this. He says, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch was in a chariot. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus was down in the dust. He's just eating dirt. And here before him, it says that they led him by the hand. They brought him into Damascus. We don't know how long that took. Uh, we don't know what that journey would have been like. But he was so shook that we're told in the text he didn't eat, drink for three days. Like he's, he's just rocked right now. He is overwhelmed. He can't even function. And for three days, it says in verse 9, and for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Just find such an encouragement to see that, that God's using this man. He's using this message to, to train him in what it's going to look like for him to move forward. This, this man who thought that he was going to enter into Damascus as a, as a fury is humbled and walks in blind, helpless, dependent. It leads to the second point this morning, and we're going to get to see this pan out for both Ananias and for Saul, is that God is going to equip his people to do his work. I don't know if any of you are fans of Karate Kid like I am. I grew up in that era, but I, I love the way that the teacher knows the end result better than the student, and he takes him on a journey that ultimately prepares him for what's ahead, but he doesn't know. The student doesn't know what's going on. I think that's what happens to us in our walk with the Lord often. And often what the Lord asks of us is a version of blind obedience. I trust you. I'm going to do what you ask. I'm going to obey. I'm going to take the next right step. And that's, that is what ends up happening here. I love this. Uh, one, my old professor said it like this. He says, uh, Dr. Thomas Constable, he says, having been a, been a persecutor of Christians, Saul became a proclaimer of the gospel. Having obtained a commission from the Jewish high priest, he received a new commission 
from the high priest out of the order of Melchizedek. Having received letters from the high priest to destroy Christians, he wrote letters to edify and exhort Christians, having unwittingly done what his teacher Gimaliel had warned against. You remember Gimaliel was the guy who says, if God's in it, don't get in the way, because who wants to get in the way of what God's doing? He fought against God, and then later he's going to fight for God, but it's going to require him to go to school. His first lesson was blind obedience is not optional for God's people. This is really, really hard. I used to be a part of a leadership training group, and one of the exercises that we'd do is we'd put on a table, I think this was before everybody had peanut allergies, but we'd put on a table uh, the stuff to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? And so the way it would work would be somebody in the room would be the leader, and then somebody would, would be blindfolded completely, and they had to walk through this process of the leader talking them through how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And often they made it like on their hand, there's jelly everywhere, it's like inside out, it's a mess, right? It's hard to do things without sight. But, but what we would do is we'd talk about how you, you listen to the voice. The first way we'd do it is that everybody would try to tell the person how to do it, and it never worked, right? Because there's all these opinions and... But then when there was just one voice that could be heard, often you could actually pull off a successful peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And what's happening here with Saul is that he's going to have one voice that he's going to listen to, one trainer that's going to force him to go through blind blind obedience. And the end result is going to be so significant. This, This second lesson I think God's going to teach him is a lesson that I keep saying. I feel like I repeat the same things, but I think God's word repeats the same things, that this is God's work, and we get invited to join him in it. So Saul's going to be invited to join God in his work. Ananias, actually, is going to get to do it, too. Pick back up with me in verse 10. It says this, Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, that's a kind of a praise the Lord moment. Like, think about the fact that the Gospels traveled almost 200 miles now. And not just does it have people who are there, but there's people who call themselves disciples of Christ, that the Gospel is spreading. And now it's made it to even Damascus. And it says this, the Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias, he said to him, here I am, Lord. (laughs) And and then the Lord said to him in verse 11, rise and go to a street called Straight at the house of Judas. Now, I think right about this point, like whoever this man Ananias is, we don't know that much about him, but but I think it's pretty obvious that he knows that God is saying something to him. He's he's like, all right, what do you want? I'm in, let's go. And and so then the Lord says, all right, I want you to go on a journey. The, The destination that he wants to send him to seems like God does this often in Acts, is to a road. And then from there, he takes him to a home of a man named Judas. Now, this man would have probably been a hint for him that something was awry, because we doubt that Saul was staying with someone who was not associated with his cause at this point. So Judas was probably a man who was opposed to Christians. But he says, rise up, go to a street called Straight, which is still today a street we can find in Damascus, a main thoroughfare. And he says, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Right then, when that came out, it would have been like, what? Excuse me? Saul, well, maybe, maybe this is a different Saul. There's, there's a lot of Sauls out there. No, a man named Saul, for behold, he's praying. I want to take a side note here real quick. Do you, do you understand 
that when you pray, that God is completely aware of it. Like at this moment, this is in the present tense that he's saying this. I want you to go do this right now. At this moment, Saul is praying to me. Like, do you understand? Like when we talk about prayer meetings and gatherings together, this isn't just a routine thing that we do out of, uh, out of guilt. or Like we just do this because we have an audience of the living God. Do you believe that? That God knew that he was right now praying and it says this in verse 12, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. So you happen to be a man named Ananias. Let's send you. Come in and lay his, your hands on him so that he might regain his sight. This had to be a say what moment. In fact, we get to see Ananias' response back. Say what, Lord? The hunted is going to be asked to minister to the hunted. That, that this man going into this was exactly the kind of person, this man Ananias was the exactly the kind of person that Paul wanted to go put in chains and drag back to Jerusalem. But here, what's going to happen in verse 15, it's just so encouraging. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children's, uh, children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Underline that in your Bibles. This is the summary statement of the rest of the Apostle Paul's life. Is that he's literally going, we're going to see shipwrecks and persecution, left for dead, stoning. Like that this is what's going to happen. He's going to, he's going to obey the Lord. It's not going to be easy. It's going to foreshadow what he goes through. But here Ananias hears this. And I can't imagine what it would have felt like for Ananias. Like there was a crucible. He's in, he's in a crossroad. Like, do I obey the voice of the Lord? Do I, do I just go back to sleep if he was dreaming? Maybe, maybe I ate something too late, late last night. You know, I, 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 maybe that dream, maybe that wasn't the voice of God. Maybe there's, there's no way God's talking about the same man that we know that breathes murderous threats is the way the text said it. But it says in verse 17, this is so good and I hope this represents us. I hope this represents my life. So Ananias departed. He stopped. He didn't argue with God anymore. He's like, hey, you know what we're getting into here. And God's like, yeah, this is the guy. And so Ananias departed. Now look how gracious he is. This is so encouraging. So Ananias departs. He entered the house and he lays his hands on Saul. That, that act is one of intimacy. The man who wanted to lay hands on him, that he's going he's gonna to embrace this man. And he's going to use a term that should shock us. He's going to call him brother. And, and here he's going, all right, God said you saved. God, God said he's our brother. Let's do it. And he walks in. And so here, so it says, so Ananias departed, entered the house, laid his hands on him. He says, brother Saul, and the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, this is great. Remember the good physician, Luke, is the author of the book of Acts. He, he describes this in kind of interesting terms. He says, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. We don't know what this was, but can't help but think of like a cataract or something that was just completely blinding him. And he regains his sight. 
And then he rose and he was baptized. Now, you know what's missing there? What did we learn before? That he hadn't eaten or drank for three days, right? He's hungry right now. Do you see what he did first? This is interesting. That he was baptized first. That he is ready to obey the Lord. This is the way Paul functions. He's an act first kind of guy. And here he, he obeys the calling of the Lord. Then after that, according to verse 19, he took food. He was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Can you imagine how awkward those conversations were? Hey, hey, in Jerusalem, did you see my mom? Did you persecute my mom, Saul? Like, can you imagine how hard that would have been? Everybody going through this, they're all having to wrestle with something that I hope we're all wrestling with. And that is the gospel sufficient to change the worst of people and of which I am the worst of all people. That the gospel sufficient, that I can change every life, even the worst ones. And, and they're having to wrestle with it. They're having these conversations. And what we're told later in Galatians chapter 1, 15 through 17, that that Paul took off after this, that Saul took off after this. And he, right after his conversion, after he was um, baptized, that he goes to Arabia. And he spends this time of preparation and equipping and studies God's word. And so, so here he, he has to sit down and reread passages of scripture like Isaiah, like the Ethiopian eunuch was reading. And he had to fill in the blanks. Oh, we're talking about Jesus that, that he had to stand back and, and begin in his heart to prepare to write a book like Hebrews that, that is going to say, oh, that was the old covenant. Now we've, we've graduated into the new covenant that was bought with his blood. That, that, that he had to stand back and he had to say, you remember that curtain in Jerusalem that was torn in two? Like we know why. Like we get it. And so there's this radical celebration of God's provision. And I, I don't know for you today what, what your life looks like when it comes to God's grace. Is his grace sufficient for you? Is he, is he significant enough that you believe that he can redeem the unredeemable? There was a man named Francis Thompson. He actually wrote a poem that some of you had to read in your literature class in schools called The Hound of Heaven. And, and he's an interesting man. He, um, when he was young, he'd studied to be a priest and he gave up on his studies. He studied medicine, and he ended up flunking out. He joined the military, but was released after one day. <laughs> he, he finally became an opium addict in London. But, but what the beauty of his story is that nothing could keep him from God's persistent love for him. Later, he would call God's relentless pursuit of him the hound of heaven, and we read this poem, it's a convoluted, it's an old English style, but it talks about God's just relentless pursuit, nonstop, he's coming after you. For those of you who haven't been found, today's a good day to be found. Today, today is the day for you to just say, Lord, I need you. But for those of you who are found, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Ananias. And I want you to remember that there was a moment there where Ananias had to let go of his prejudice, right? His prejudice against Paul was that, that this man is a persecutor. Of, of like, I, I prejudge this man. He's evil. And that, that what God was going to do is that God was going to say, oh no, he's my child. We're going to work through him. We're going to do this. We're going to let this go. 
We're going to trust that God can do this. And this is anybody that you and I interact with. That they, like some of you, you've told me about your bosses. You've told me about your neighbors. You've told me, like, like I love that one story that the guy says that he's, uh, he's so frustrated with his neighbor that he run out of cheeks to turn, right? You know, I love that joke. Like that, but but that, that the Lord loves them and that they can potentially join you in being Christ followers, even those who have been nasty, malicious, evil. For some of you in your family, you have family members that you've given up on. And I just want to encourage you that today's not the day to give up on them. That, that today is an opportunity for us to choose to follow the hound of heaven as he pursued us. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, his compulsion is our liberation. In other words, God is pursuing you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to celebrate in your life with him. So I'm going to challenge you in a couple of ways. These are going to hopefully be encouraging to you. The first one is, it, it's appropriate for you to look at your own life and ask yourself the question, what was my, what is my Damascus Road experience? And I doubt too many of us were blinded. I doubt too many of us had to experience the pain that Saul experienced. But I hope you are able to look back on your life and to say, there was a time period in my life when I went from death to life. That there was a time period when I chose to embrace the Lord. And it is evidenced by the fact that I changed the path that I was on. So you remember, Paul's on a path of destruction and what Lord chooses, the Lord chooses to do for him is that he puts him on a path towards life, right? It's awesome. And so for you, what is your personal Damascus road? What does it look like? The, the second question that I have for you this morning is, what does obedience to God look like in your life today? I'm afraid that for some of us, when we sit in the seat of Ananias, that we have enough excuses that allow us to not follow him in obedience. That God has said, I want you to do this. And Ananias had just cause to say back, God, you don't know this man. You don't know how bad this is. You don't know who he is. Do you understand what costs too much? It'd be too hard. I don't know what those are, but I want to ask you, in your own life, are you, I put in my weekly email, you know, the old, the old song that I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. You guys know, you're like, I won't sing it for you. That, that would be terrible. But I remember the first time I heard those words when they were sung, I remember thinking, well, then you won't do anything for love, right? Like it's, it doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. And I, I believe that as Christ followers, that there's a part of us that'll say, oh God, I'll do anything. I'll go to that country. I'll do that. I'll obey you. I'll sacrifice. I'll, but I won't do, and, and I'm guessing if Ananias had to have one of those, that he was like, I, I'll share the gospel with Damascus, but you want me to share the gospel with a man who wants to destroy the church in Damascus? Yeah, that's what I want. In fact, that's the way God works often. And he, he asks us to do something that, that requires at times blind obedience. And, and I know it's a turn on words, but Ananias had to obey and he modeled it. Paul had to take the next step of obedience. And so I don't know what that looks like for you, but I want to challenge you in this. And then I'm going to ask you to think about your sphere of influence. Some of you are on sports teams and think about your soccer team or your, some of you, you kids, you're in school and you have classmates. And, and, and I can speak in my own life that there have been these times when there were people 
who if I were going to put a ranking on them, like if I, if I listed their name out and I said, all right, what's the likelihood of this person accepting Christ? That, that I would have put a grade or a scale or a score. And what over time that I realized is that I was completely wrong. In fact, God can work through the most unlikely of people. The, the man who was quoted at the beginning of this, C.S. Lewis, was an outspoken atheist at a time in his life. He, he didn't believe that God existed. And yet God was going to do this thing. His compulsion is his liberation. Are there any people in your life that you've written off as being beyond? This is important. This is my wording, but I think it's accurate. And, and I want you to catch this. Have you written them off as being beyond the love of God. Like, like they're, too, they're too lost. They're too bad. They're too gross. They're too scary. They're too evil. Too, too, too. I just remind you, that was your story before you came to Christ. That was you. That was me. That was who we are, friends. And so here, have you written anyone off as being beyond the love of Christ? Stop it. It's evil. It's wrong. It means you don't understand what grace is. Do you remember how we define grace? It's un deserved favor granted freely from God based on his work on our behalf. This is his work. We get to receive it. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads together with me, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And I just want to celebrate the goodness of God's grace. Lord, we love you, and I just thank you for these examples of obedience. Lord, that this, this story of this man, Saul, would as familiar as it is, be this reminder to us that your grace is greater than our preconceived notions of one another. Your grace is greater than our reputations. Your grace is greater than all of the chapters of the story of our lives up till today. And I, and I want to pray for all those who are within the sound of my voice this morning, that they would first begin to search their own hearts and to say, Lord, have I run from you? Have I run in the wrong direction? Have I pursued things that are less than what you want us? Am I on the wrong path? Uh, Lord, would you speak to them? Would you encourage them? Would you remind them of your loving kindness? That as we sang in that first song, your loving kindness leads us to righteousness. Lord, would you do it? Would you do it again? And I pray for those of us who have, have a, a, just a mental picture of someone that's in our life that's hard for us to love, someone in our life that, that either has wounded us or hurt, hurt us, threatened us, or been a source of pain. Lord, would you draw them unto yourself? Would you allow us to be conduits of your grace? Would you open our hearts towards them the way you did Ananias, that that in these, these verses, we get to see a man who said, oh no, to absolutely. And then to, to take a man who was, was on the other team and to embrace him as if he were a brother. Lord, what an awesome story. What an encouragement of you, of what you do when you turn us from death to life. So Lord, I pray that as we close this service, thanking you for your word, thanking you for your grace, Pray that we would fill this room with the praise that you deserve. We love you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.